0: When WRBL TV went on the air in 1953, this man was on on the radio in the next booth. He not only knows the history of Columbus television, he has been an integral part of it. You're not going to want to miss this one. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is The Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. We're in week number five, and tonight, uh, I would say we're the longest-running podcast on WRBL. I got filled by a week. Uh, But uh, we're in week five, and we have a special guest tonight. With us is somebody who really doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. And it's Dick McMichael. Dick was on the air in television in Columbus longer than anybody else has been he retired in 2000 but dick worked at both channel three and channel nine um so dick welcome it's it's so good to see you man you look good how how old are you if you don't mind me asking
1: well i've been around for nine decades (laughs) Uh, that would be 90 it all started in 1930 uh columbus was a much smaller city in 1930 I think we had about 50,000 population, and uh, today we have, what, over 200,000. So it's uh, it's changed a lot over the years, and in many, many ways.
0: You've seen those changes. I mean, in, you know, you've seen it with a front row. I mean, one of the cool things about this job is you get a front row seat to history. You've had that for years. Um Tell, let's tell people a little bit about your career, about, you know, about just the early, i tell you what, let's do this a little different. You are from Columbus, so you grew up here. Where'd you go to school?
1: Well, I started out at East Winton, Winton School, Winton Elementary, which was one of the oldest schools in the state, still is, still (laughs) active, and it's, uh, uh, I entered the first grade there, and I was there from the first through the. The fourth grade, and it was an interesting school because it had a, a pretty good mixture of society. You had some uh, rich kids there from the prominent families in Columbus, and you had people like me.
0: Uh, so, you weren't from one of those prominent families? No,
1: no, but I was from a, a very loving family and a very good family, and, and that was an interesting time. It was the Great Depression during the 1930s, and and uh. It was uh, you didn't know it was all that bad uh, because uh, we never wanted for food. My father was always in the grocery business and the wholesale produce business, so uh, food wasn't wasn't a problem. But it was for a lot of people back then, and uh, it was a, it was a different time uh, than it, than it is now—a very different time. And a big deal was the radio, uh, and WRBL radio uh was an independent station for up until I was about ten years old. Uh, CBS didn't come into Columbus until 1939 and uh, well I was about eight years old and And, and the very first CBS program was uh, Glenn Miller and his orchestra. And the reason that uh, it was the very first CBS program in Columbus is because Jim Woodruff Jr, uh, who ended up uh, basically owning most of the station at one point. Uh, his, his, he, his father owned it back then at, at the time. And, uh, but anyway, uh, he was running it. He was the manager. And he was probably in his 30s. And, and so they were talking about what's going to be the first CBS program we're going to run in Columbus on WRBL when we joined the network. Glenn Miller, because he liked Glenn Miller. And that was radio,
0: right? This yeah. wasn't TV now. No, we're, still, we're still 15 years from TV,
1: right? Oh, this is radio. 19, 19, uh, well, I said I was born in 1930. And so <clears throat> they had a, the first radio station, WRBL, was in a studio. Uh, the studio was in a dressing room in back of the Royal Theater. And the Royal Theater was the Three arch Theater. You might remember the Three Arts Theater. Well, it was actually started as the Royal, and it was the second largest theater in Georgia when it was built in 1938. It was a movie palace, and it had a great stage and stage lighting and everything, and, and they'd show a movie, and then after the movie, they'd have a live stage show, which they called a vaudeville at the time. And so you had all that going on, and in the back, in a dressing room, WRBL went on the air in 1928 with 50 watts. That's not a lot of watts. Not a watts, but it was enough to cover Columbus back then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow! So, so radio was always a part of your life as a kid, right?
1: Oh, absolutely! Radio was a big deal. I mean, radio is what TV is today. Back then, Uh, you had all you had dramas on there, and you had comedies, and of course you had a lot of music programs, and and a lot of the, the, the programming was live. Uh, and uh, you did have rec- recorded programs. And since the the station was in... Well, by the way, I'll tell you one little historic thing here about WRBO. It was uh, Roy Martin owned the... Martin Theaters in Phoenix Martin, City. Martin Theaters, and <laughs> eventually all over the South. And it became Carmike. Fuquanda and Carmike Theaters. But, but anyway, uh, he, owned, he owned the Royal, he opened the Royal Theater. And, uh, and that was a big deal. And and so uh, uh, they decided they wanted to have a radio station. And I think the man's name was Moore. One of them was Moore. See, radio Bill Lewis, RBL. Radio Bill Lewis was one of the guys and more Moore was the other, and I think one of them was a projector at the Royal. Ran a projector at the Royal Theatre, and they got to, to, with Martin and said, "We want, we want to start a radio station," and they built the transmitter, the fifty watt transmitter, and he he let them do it, and <laughs> and they did, and after a while he sold it, and he, I think he sold it to um, he sold it to the JCs, and uh. A civic organization, a civic organization, and the reason he sold it was he said, uh, "You can't make any money with this radio thing. Uh, uh, you, you have to pay all these people to be on the radio." Well, it turned out he <laughs> it turned out that this station ended up making a lot of money over the years, and uh, yeah, this the station's done well. It has done very well, but it was the first, and and then of course uh, WDAK was the second. Now. That brings me to this tie. I don't know if you can see that or not, but that's a microphone. And uh, and that microphone is like the first radio microphone that I used at WDAK. It was an RCA ribbon microphone, great microphone. Uh, they still make them, I think, but they, you don't see them very much. But anyway. So was, you started as a radio guy here in town. I was in high school, and uh, I was in the. The, the Jordan Vocational High School band. I ended up being the drum major. And, and it's who was your band director? Bob Barr.
0: The famous Bob
1: Barr. The famous Robert M. Barr. Big time. You know, we have the Bob Barr band right now in, in Columbus that plays for concerts and so forth. But it's, uh, but anyway, uh, I was in the band and he asked me, What do you want to do, Richard? That was Richard back then. I said, well, I'm kind of interested in being a radio announcer. And he says, well, I know Ed Snyder at WDAK. He's a friend of mine. Let me, let me talk to him. And he got back to me and says, Ed, I told Ed Snyder about you. And he said, well, send him down Saturday night. And so <clears throat> went down to WDAK Saturday night. And uh, it was upstairs over the Flowers Brothers building on Broadway at the time. Small studio. Uh. And so I went into the control room and Ed Snyder was sitting at the console and it was one of these microphones was hanging down and, 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 he, and he, we chatted a little bit and it was almost 11 o'clock when I got there. That's when He told me to come. And he said, okay, now what's going to happen here is that the network is on right now. The network is going to end and, and then uh, we're going to do a station break and we're going back to the network for the news. Then after that, I'm going to do a record program. He said, okay. He said, so here's what we're going to do. When they give the the station break, I'm going to get up, and you're going to sit down, and you're going to do the station break. I said, what? (laughs) He says, yes, you you want to do that? I said, well, I guess so. And so uh, the network program came to an end, and, and he got up, and, uh, and I sat down, and he reached over and turned the microphone on. And all I had to say was, he told me what to say was, this is Radio Columbus WDAK. It's 11 o'clock. <laughs> you still remember the line, That huh? was my first line on radio at WDAK. Oh, that was probably about 1948. So that's when the
0: broadcast career began in Columbus.
1: You know what? That was a magic moment. The minute that microphone went on, I had a buzz all over my body. It was physical. Mm. And, and, uh, and I said those words, and it was, that was the beginning of the magic. And, you know, this is a, really a, a wonderful media, uh, medium. And in, in so many ways, it can be misused and is quite often. But it's like Edward L. was pointing out uh, about television you know, he had this program on CBS called See It Now. And and on one of them, he was showing them the, the power and the quality of television. Back in the old days, everything was black and white and pretty primitive. And he said, and you watch this and you will see what we can do with this television. We have one camera in California facing the Pacific Ocean. Bam, that came up on the screen, the Pacific Ocean. He said, that is a live picture of the Pacific Ocean. And now we have the other camera, and that is on the Atlantic Ocean. You're about to see from the Pacific Ocean live to the Atlantic Ocean live, and boom, that popped up on the screen. And he says, now we have this wonderful thing here, this wonderful medium, but the question now is, what are we going to do with it?
0: And, that, and that, that's the question they're asking today. I mean, it's you now. Got cable channels and everything, but I, I want you're, you're taking me somewhere I want to go, but I want to get there kind of later a, on, a little slower. Uh, yeah, the, you're. You are. When, when you started, that when those that buzz hits you, what did you think? Is this like this is what I'm going to do, or did you start trying to figure out how to be able to say something other than than that one line? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I was pretty busy at the time. I was still in high school. Drum major. I was drum major of the band. I played drums. I had a set of drums. And I played drums with the Teen Tavern Tutors. And the Teen Tavern Tutors, TTT... Was a seventeen-piece dance band, you know, like Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and Harry James. Remember all those bands? Well, you wouldn't remember all those. I don't bands. remember those bands, but, I, <laughs> but I've you, seen, I've seen them. You've heard them, and so we had this. So I played the drums, and in uh, in the teen tavern tours, and so that kept me pretty busy. Also, we had a teen tavern. It was a nightclub for teenagers for Jordan, Columbus, and Baker High Schools. Where was that club? <laughs> <laughs> it, was on, it was on 10th uh, Avenue, and... Uh, so not far from here. No, not far from here. It was on 10th Avenue, and you know where the viaduct is? Yeah. When well, you, you go into the viaduct and you come out, and to the right used to be R.C. Cola and High. and you know, right across the street was a mill.
0: The housing authority there now. A
1: cotton mill. Well, the housing authority would be to the right. Okay. And so the, to the left was this big mill, and so... The mill was abandoned. They'd stopped using it, so they let the city recreation part use one end of it for the teen tavern, and so we had one end of that mill for a teen tavern, and and they had uh, tables in there with chairs around them, had a snack bar. You could buy hamburgers and hot dogs, Coca-Colas and RCs and Nehi's and so forth, and they had ping-pong tables, and I think there was a pool table, and it had... A, a band and a dance floor, and they had that was the,
0: all you needed in forty one forty eight,
1: wasn't it? Oh yeah, that was a big deal. And so we were the band, and that's where I really learned how to play a set of drums. And I, it's interesting that I really wasn't a professional musician in the sense that I was a real pro. I, I knew I wasn't that good. I was good enough to get by, and I was a pro because I got paid and. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you define being a pro, right? Yeah, if somebody pays you, you're professional. Well, I ended up doing that in the Army, too, but go ahead. Okay,
0: so, you, so when you graduated, you joined the
1: Army, right? No, I was drafted. <laughs> okay, there's a difference, right? There's a difference, and, and that happened later. Okay. Uh, I, I, When I got out of high school, I went to work for WDAK Radio, and... Uh, And I uh, I did that for, oh, about a little over a year, I guess. And and they figured I needed a little more experience. Uh, And that was an interesting experiment. And so Alan Woodall Sr., who was part owner of the station at the time, I had very little to do with him most of the time because I was just a young announcer, and I had a chief announcer, and I might see him walk down the hall every now and then, but I got called into his office, and they said, well, you know, Dick, we just think you need a little more experience. And so uh, Ed Mullinax over in LaGrange uh, <coughs> needs a Santa Claus. And uh, it's Christmas time, and, and he, he wants another voice to come in there that the kids won't recognize to be Santa Claus and read the Santa Claus letters on WLAG radio in LaGrange. <laughs> and if you're willing to do that, he will hire you as an announcer, and once Christmas is over, and you will still be an, an, an announcer there. And uh, so, you know, you, of course, you don't have to take that job, but he is interested, so I well, you know, okay. So I went to, to LaGrange, and I became Santa Claus. Uh, I would go in in the afternoon, and I was, what, 18, 19 years old? <laughs> Nineteen years old. <laughs>
0: and Dylan right here. Uh, Dylan Hansen is our director, and he is 19 years old. And we were just talking. So that's a, that's a 70 years from now, Dylan. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> so you were reading the Santa Claus letters.
1: Yeah, I was reading. I was going in the afternoon. It was about 3 o'clock or something like that. And, and these letters would come in, all these cards and everything. <laughs> I'd do this big Santa Claus voice, you know, ho, 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 ho. I was 19 years old, ho, 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 and, ho. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm reading these different letters, you know, little, little Annie wants uh, a doll and so forth. And, okay, Annie, we'll certainly do what we can about that, ho, 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 ho.
0: <laughs> it sounds like you enjoyed it. And
1: then, uh, well, I, you know, I was i 've always been somewhat of an actor, and, uh, and you know I acted with plays at the Springer and some plays in Atlanta, theater Atlanta, and so forth, and I worked there so it was a it was a challenge to do it, and he'd live up to his word i I, I was an announcer there I'd get off the Santa Claus thing and it'd be about another fifteen minutes later, and I'd go on the board and I would be a straight announcer, <laughs> reading commercials and all this stuff and 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 that was a good experience. It was it was really good experience. And, and by then, uh, Mullinax had a pretty good deal because by then I'd made most of my learning mistakes at WDAK. And I didn't make near, nearly as many at, uh, at WLAG. And I learned, what, this, what I've learned over the years is each place you work, you, you learn a little bit more. You learn a, bit, a little bit different how to do things. You've experienced that.
0: Yeah, I have
1: <laughs> right, and and so I uh, that that was good, and, and like I said, each place uh, taught me taught me lessons, and uh, and and then I, I left there and went to Mercer University, and got a job at WBML, Men Macon. <laughs> That's what I did. I'd already decided we, my mother wanted me to go to Mercer, so I'd already decided I was going to do that. But I knew I had to have some have, had to work. And so I went to Macon, unannounced, no letters, no telephone calls, and just went from one radio station to the next, and said, "I'm looking for a job." Well, WMAZ was the big station; it had ten thousand watts. This was before TV, and uh, no, we don't hire Mercer students. And the name of that station was where Mercer attained zenith, <laughs> because when it first went on the air, it was went on, it was a, a a station that was owned by Mercer University, and now they wouldn't hire Mercer students as an announcers. <laughs> and so, I did end up finding go to WBML, which at that time was an ABC station, and they had an opening at night and hired me. And and I got the job. I just w- went in and said, uh, uh, you know, I'm looking for a job and so forth. And, uh, and <clears throat> would you like an audition? Yeah, we want we'll see an audition. I went in the studio, and then. And they handed me a couple of commercials and some news copy. And I, I did that. I auditioned live. They were just listening in the control room. And they hired me to do the night shift. And, and that's what I did. I was at Mercer and doing the night shift in radio. And then I was drafted into the United States Army after about a little over two years, I guess. Uh, and that was a really interesting experience. <coughs>
0: The Korean War was going on
1: then. The Korean War was just ending when I went in. And, uh, but I ended up in Germany. Uh, I was stationed at Fort Gordon in Augusta in an Army band. Uh, I was playing the snare drum, actually the cymbals. And, and I stayed there until, uh, oh, was, I guess it was almost a year. And, <clears throat> and then I got shipped overseas, and that was the best thing that happened. Because then I got to, I was stationed in Munich, Germany, and Munich is 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 the place to be stationed if you're in the United States Army in Germany, and everybody said that. And I was really, really fortunate, I guess, that I was assigned to the 30th Army Band in Munich, Germany, and it was it was really an interesting. You know, the war had on World War II had been over about only about ten years,
0: and, and it had to be an interesting place to be ten years after the war.
1: It was, but, we, you know, we didn't have any problems. We fit right in, and, and uh, Germany was making a fast recovery thanks to us and the Marshall Plan. And, uh, and, yeah, it was fun. They had a Oktoberfest, and you had great Munich beer and so forth. I think I would enjoy that. Right.
0: When you – I want to ask you, Army Band, you were in the Army Band. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite march?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good one.
0: Because you had to have played every one of them a hundred
1: million times. Well, yeah, you play a lot of different marches, and National Emblem was one of my favorites, I suppose. You know, the monkey wrapped his tail around the flagpole. and How does that go? Oh, the monkey wrapped his tail around the flagpole. Do, do, do. <laughs> I'm not I'm gonna uh,
0: have to go Google that. I'm gonna Google the monkey raptors tail around the five
1: But well, no, that's not the name of the song. No, that. But that's, that the song is the National Emblem March. People just are clowning around when they sing that.
0: Oh, okay. I like the clowning around version. <laughs> um, what did you? What did the army do for you? I mean, what'd you learn? I mean, what'd you get out of it?
1: I learned uh, to deal with a great diversity of people and and to meet different types of challenges and to uh, adjust to different situations. And, and I got to see a lot of Europe on Uncle Sam's dollars. Uh, I went to Venice, Italy. I went to Rome. I went to Naples. And uh, I saw uh, some very interesting things, the Roman Forum and the Colosseum and... And, of course, uh, it was, and I was able to go to Switzerland. That was went, a long
0: way from Jordan High School. Wasn't I, it? Went
1: to, I went to Zurich. I went to Lucerne. And, uh, and of course, I went to Aust- Austria, which is right next to Germany. I went to France. I went to Paris. Uh, I had decided when I was on leave, going on leave, that uh, I wanted to go to London. And so I went out to the... United States Air Force Base in Munich, and was going to try to get a free flight, get on one of those Air Force planes going to London. And <clears throat> so they said, Well, you know, we don't have that. Uh, we have one going to Frankfurt, and maybe you can catch a flight from Frankfurt. Turned out there was lying. But anyway, I'll, we'll get to that. And and so uh, I went to this transport plane, huge boxcar in the back, transported, it twin, had twin boom engines on it, and then tailed rudders and so forth. And so it was in the back, there were two travelers. It was a WAC, Women's Army Corps Lieutenant and me. I was a PFC at the time. Now, to get a ride on an Air Force plane, you had to wear your uniform. You couldn't do it in your civvy. So I had on my PFC uniform, and she had on her lieutenant's uniform. So we sat in the back of that plane and it took off and headed for Frankfurt. <clears throat> uh, they invited her finally to, to come up front within the cockpit and she did. And so one of the guys came back uh, and looked out the window. One of, he, one of the crew members in the cockpit came back and looked out the window the side of one of the engines. Then he went back and <clears throat> I said, hmm, what, what's going on? He's, what if we were having a problem with one of those engines? It turned out we were, and nothing happened. But after we landed, and the, the the WAC lieutenant and I got into a Jeep, and we were headed for the terminal, and she, she said, Did, you know, when that guy came back there and looked out that window, they were worried about that engine. It was having problems. I said, oh, wow, okay. But it was okay. And she said, you know what? <clears throat> This plane is going to London. It's going to land here. It's in Frankfurt. It landed here in Frankfurt. Then it's going to London, but they won't let us stay on it because it's that engine problem, and it's going over the channel, and they're just not going to take any passengers. And so I said, okay. Well, I couldn't get a flight out of there. It was just almost impossible. So I did the second best thing and got on a train and went to Paris, that's not bad.
0: That is, <laughs> that's not bad. So when you got out of the army, you came home, right?
1: Yeah, came home, went back to work at WRBO. What year was that? Nineteen fifty-six. And uh, I had been in radio first here. I did some television while I was there, but I was in radio. I did a few, co- did a commercial or two on television and and some features type stuff, but mainly I was on the radio, on radio. You were in
0: this building the day they started the t- they turned the switch on TV, right? Right,
1: I was in the radio control room, in the radio control room in the TV What year was that? 53? 53. 53. The radio control room and the TV control room were right next to one another. And they're still here as a matter of fact, because it's not radio anymore. And so I would sit there doing that night, I was on the night shift, and I'd look through that window, and I would see what was going on over there in the control room. And I'm looking over there, and I'm thinking, that's for me. And uh, that's what I want. And, uh, and, but I, <clears throat> I couldn't get it at that time. I was a radio announcer. And, but I was invited every now and then to do something on television. As I, like I said, I did a commercial or two. The very first thing I did on television, I believe, was a Schick commercial, Schick Razor. Came in live. The reason I got the, the, the commercial was I was working the, the radio shift on Sunday afternoon, and on the radio, we had the network going. and The network was playing different Sunday afternoon programs, music programs, and so forth. And so I would just sit there for half an hour and... The, and the program would end, and I'd do a station break, 30 seconds, and then, <clears throat> so they said, you know what, you have all that time anyway, and so we want to run a shit commercial on uh, on uh, television. You can just walk over from the radio control room and go out in the studio and do it. Commercials were live then, right? Most, most of them were. Very few were filmed, but, and, and didn't have tape, <clears throat> videotape, and so, what well, you know, sure? Hey, I'm gonna be on television, and uh, so I did a, a shit, shit commercial, and I memorized it.
0: <laughs> what was the, you still remember a line out of it?
1: No, I don't remember. <laughs> well, that's not fair. I don't right? remember so, a I, word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you, when did you, you got your first full time television gig here in '56? Right. So, that started essentially a fifty uh, a 46-year run on television in Columbus, Georgia. Well, no, I... But
1: you had a break. You went to the Carolinas, right? I was... Well, here's what happened. I was here uh, in 1956, and I got married. Okay. And, and I decided I was going to have to have some more money because I got married. And... So I asked for a raise, and I got a very small one. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, going to have to do something about this. So I asked for a day off, and, uh, and they gave it to me. They were good about that. And we got in the car, my new bride and I, and we drove up to Atlanta. Didn't write anybody, didn't call anybody. I started making the rounds of the television stations. I went to WAGA TV. Oh, we don't have any openings. We don't, we'll don't. see having any openings anytime soon. Went to the other one, we don't have any openings. There are no openings at the WSB TV, but I learned there was an opening at WSB Radio. And so I took advantage of that information and went over, and <clears throat> I went to the back desk, and I said, uh, I understand that uh, you do have an opening in radio, and that I... Need to see Elmo Ellis. And Elmo Ellis was the program manager at WSB Radio. He, a, he made quite a mark for himself in the radio broadcasting business. But anyway, uh, I didn't even know him. And, and she says, well, okay, wait just a minute. And she called him. She, she, she said, have a seat. He'll see you in a few minutes. And so I did so I went back, and uh, he interviewed me, and we had a conversation, and he learned about my background and how much experience I had and everything, and then uh, and then he uh, he said, "I'll let you know." And uh, and about and we had we even discussed money, salary, and uh, so I went went back went back to Columbus, and two weeks later, Elmo. Call me, and uh, and said we're interested in hiring you, uh, and uh, then I tried to get a little more money. Totally unfair question, and, right? How much were you making back then? I was probably about eighty bucks a week, but that was in back. Well, you got to factor in inflation now.
0: Okay, so, I got it. I got it. That's, that was that was decent money back
1: then, and uh, and and so uh, uh, so I said. Uh, and he said, "Well, that's we agreed on the other." And, and I said, "Well, okay." So that was a life changer. When I went to WSB Radio in Atlanta, uh, that was back then. Particularly, that was a big deal. WSB was known as back; they had what they called national stations. It was fifty thousand watts, and AM fifty thousand watts, which meant that it had a sky wave that would go all over the place. And so wherever that sky wave hit, you'd get a clear signal. Uh, so you could hear WSB radio sometimes a 1,000 miles away because it was a 50,000-watt clear-channel station back then. So I was in the high cotton when I got hired at WSB radio. And it was a high cotton. It was one of the top stations in the country. And the Elmo Ellis was a big leader in in taking the rust out of radio. <laughs> TV had come along and radio was having to take the back seat. Radio had been what TV became. It but, had had the network. So
0: how were. long did you how long did you stay at SB?
1: I stayed at SB about 4 years and then I ended up doing the morning news. And wow. that and that was the beginning of that once I started doing the morning news at WSB, and that was a time to do the morning news at WSB. That was when you had desegregation of the University of Georgia, desegregation of Georgia State in Atlanta. Uh, it was—many things happened. That's when Sputnik was launched by the, by the Soviets, and it was—and uh, and, and, and I got on the network quite a few times when I was working at WSB. I did—
0: Because of some of the, the race stories in Georgia—
1: well, I did features that got on quite a bit. I, I one, one feature I did, I interviewed Eleanor Roosevelt and Dr. Jonas Salk. Uh, they were at the Warm Springs Polio Institute. And I went over there and, and uh, interviewed both of them while I was at SB. And I interviewed uh, David Sarnoff, the founder of RCA and NBC. And so it was a... It was really interesting. You had
0: access to people when you were at SB, right? Well,
1: oh, I'll say I interviewed Richard Nixon when he was running for president uh, later on.
0: What did you think about Nixon after you interviewed him?
1: <clears throat> I was never a fan. Uh, and you, st- you said just like we are and talked to him, right? Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm mixed up on that. I didn't interview Nixon at WSB at that time. I interviewed him later when I was working at WAGA TV in Atlanta, okay, and um, we we can get to that if you want yeah. to.
0: Yeah, I was going to move far because I want to really get into the Columbus stuff. We've we've we're thirty five minutes into this, and I could listen to you all night. <laughs> you,
1: you, you tell me what you want to know.
0: Now, but so you did the radio for four years, and then you went to television, right? From back into television after that, right? Well. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that simple. You're, but, you know, your journey is not that simple, but it's fascinating.
1: Well, what happened was was that uh, I finally figured that I was going to get anywhere in the broadcast business in radio. I needed to get into management. I needed to be a program manager like Elmo Ellis was instead of a, just a, an announcer, blah, blah, blah. So Jim Woodruff, WRBL's Jim Woodruff, I had worked for him twice before, uh hired me again, and this time he hired me as the program manager for WRBL Radio and WGSP Radio in Albany, Georgia, and he had a station in Bainbridge, and I don't remember the call letters. I was the program manager for those three stations. And and so the idea was to make WRBL a little bit more like WSB. RBL was having a little bit of a problem because it had not adjusted to television coming along and taking that audience, radio had to go into specialty programming. And I knew this because I'd worked at SB. And that's and so I came back and I did that. And sure enough, I got the ratings up in the radio. I you know, got modernized it, so to speak. and uh, But while I was here, uh, one night, uh, Glenn Broman was doing the television news. He was the television they had a three man news department back then by the way <laughs> three <laughs> yeah and he and he was the he was the number one guy he I noticed one. you said three man news department well no i that's wrong it was two it was, it was a woman it was okay cool okay two, two guys and a, and a lady and uh but it, but anyway he uh uh so he he Glenn Broman who was doing the evening news had to be out of town to going to Opelika for something the ores uh, audio tape business, and so they said, "Would you would you sit in for him on television tonight?" Because I knew I had the news background at WSB Radio. I said, "Well, okay." Well, that was it. I went on that night and uh, got some pretty good reviews. And uh, what year was that? That was probably sixty-two, and that was the that was really that was really the beginning, and. And and probably maybe six months later, a little bit more, uh, I was doing the news on television and radio. I mean, I did some radio, but uh, basically it was television. And then it
0: was—that's when you became an anchor.
1: Right. Right. But was anchor a term back then? What was the the
0: term? The term was anchor. Mm I want to do something. You grew up through this. I want to get into a bunch of other stuff. I want just to get a quick reaction because a lot of people that are part of the television history of this town, you work with. I mean, you worked around. And I just want to throw out some names and just sort of tell me a little bit of, about them. I mean, it doesn't have to be long, but just your sort of your thoughts. And I'll start with, I'll start with Ridley Bell.
1: Well, Ridley Bell was manager of the television station when it went on the air. He had been the program manager and eventually station manager. Jim Woodruff was the general manager and president of WRBL Radio. And so he was the first manager of WRBL TV. And uh, And I didn't know him real well. Uh, I was working for him because I was a booth announcer when I came back from the Army. That's what my job mm. was a booth announcer for television. Wow. And uh, and he was the, the general manager. He's the one I went to for a raise and got it. <laughs> and uh, so yeah. he was a fine he was a fine man. What about Doug Wallace? Oh boy, that's that's another. Oh, that's a big story there. Doug Wallace is a big story. Doug Wallace is an icon uh, and <clears throat> sort of an you know an institution, you could say.
0: And y'all were on the air many years together, right? Many
1: years together. I got to know Doug very well. He had a, what he called the pea patch.
0: Did he ever take you to the pea patch?
1: He did. Because that was in a secret location. In it our, was. He wouldn't tell anybody where it was. Where was the pea patch? <laughs> it, was a, <laughs> it was on, uh, you know where Schomburg Road is? Yeah. I think it was on Schomburg, and it might have been the next road over. But it was out there. And, uh, and he told me where it was, and he, that, that was an honor. Oh. <laughs> To know where Doug Wallace's pea patch right? that was a big deal. Uh, and I worked with him for years and years and years, and And he was quite a character. He we was, got his
0: board, one of his old boards over there. Right. And he, I mean, what I remember, I remember as a kid watching Doug Wallace, and I can remember him flipping up the chalk. And and if he caught it, it was going to rain, or something. There was some legend to him throwing the chalk.
1: Do you remember all that? Well, the big deal was that the Fort Benning soldiers would sit in the barracks watching Doug Wallace and would bet. On whether he was going to drop the chalk or not.
0: <laughs> it was a gambling game?
1: Huh? It was a gambling game? Yeah, they, they wouldn't have been in the barracks and they're watching this guy doing the weather on Columbus television and they got used to him throwing the chalk and, and they said, okay, I'll, I'll bet you half a buck that he misses it next time he throws it. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. They all got started.
0: <laughs> oh, man, I can remember I had friends that were farmers. And they watched Doug Wallace religiously every oh, yeah. night. They were in they were in the Barber Russell County line, and that was the, the, everything stopped to see what Doug said was going to
1: happen well, tomorrow. Doug Wallace was <clears throat> I didn't know this for a long time, but uh, when we first went into Iraq with a military Desert Storm, uh, I was retired by then. I wasn't working for any anybody, but but they asked me if I would come back and and do some features uh, at WTVM. If I would come back and just do some features, they would pay me per feature uh, about uh, heroes, Columbus military heroes. I mean, this was inspired by this war. And uh, so Doug Wallace was one of them. And uh, so I knew Doug very well. I'd worked with him for years. But what I realized is what I didn't know about Doug Wallace but when I went out and did that profile, I learned that Doug Wallace uh, was awarded the Silver Star in World War II. Whoa. He was an, he was an artillery observer. And he, he was a, I think he reached the rank of second lieutenant. And he and a, and a spotter would go out in front of the artillery and they would have, dig a trench, a uh, foxhole type thing, and they would sit there and and with uh, glasses, with binoculars.
0: These guys are firing behind them. They're now.
1: firing over them. Oh, I and, don't think I want that job. And they would and they would have a, a a wireless telephone or maybe even a line one, and then they would tell him where the fire was hitting and 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 direct the, the fire. So that was his job, and and he wow. ended up with a silver star. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing! I n- I never knew that. That's that's amazing.
1: What about Roselle? <laughs> Roselle was a force, uh, no doubt about that. She uh, <laughs> Doug Wallace was on the show with her every morning, and so was Don Nally. Uh, it was Doug Wallace and Don Nally and Roselle, and everybody else in Columbus at one time or another. It seemed. Uh, she would have different guests on there every morning. And she would do some, she had a kitchen, on the air kitchen. She would cook things and give recipes. And, and uh, but, but she would interview all sorts of people. She would interview the general out at Fort Benning. And, <laughs> and Woodruff had a, Jim Woodruff had a quite a, repu, a um what's the word I'm looking for? He, he, he had a, quite a connection with Fort Benning. Uh, uh, and and so we would cover a lot of activities out there. And Roselle called calls the general and him if he would come down and be on her show. Well, of course, you know Jim Woodruff was the president of the Uni- Association of the United States Army at the time. And I said, well, yeah, the general general will come. And she said, well, can you can you bring some uh, uh, some weapons to, to that we can show the public of what's going on at Fort Benning? I pulled up. I was, pulled, I was working on the radio side. I think, back then. I think I was still a program manager. And I pulled up and parked, and I looked, and all around the back, back of the station in the parking lot, and down in that field below, there were armored carriers. There were <laughs> tanks. What did you do? There were artillery pieces. He brought the Army. He brought the Army with him. And they rolled a live camera, black and white camera out that back door and t- took shots of it.
0: y'all had some good <laughs> things going here oh, in, I'll tell you in something set-
1: it, was, it was some was interesting we We had at one point we had this uh guy that was went berserk and they they had a tower out here at one time uh It had been used a little bit back when we first went on with television. It was the first television tower they eventually took it down, but it was still there when I was there. And this guy goes up and climbs that tower, and, and then he wouldn't come down. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so they, I hope this
0: has a better ending than what I'm thinking. And,
1: and so what they did was they took, took a live camera from the studio and rolled it down the hall out that back door and aimed it up to that uh, shot of that guy up, up on top of the tower. And it was, people were just fascinated <laughs> with it. They were watching it all over town. Uh, it was live. And everybody's wondering what they were going to do. And finally, some MPs came. He was a soldier. And some MPs came from Fort Benning. And they had a guy named Charlie Black, I think his name was.
0: Legendary Ledger and reporter, Charlie right. he Black.
1: Was, he was a war re- correspondent, so to in, speak. In Vietnam. In Vietnam, and he would built this reputation of that. And so... Charlie Black came out here and climbed the tower. And, and this was while I was alive. Charlie went up after him? And some MPs. They started up that tower. And, uh, and they got up there close enough to him to talk him down. And they talked and they talked and they talked. And, they talked, and, and so he finally agreed to come down. Uh, I think the deal was you have to get up the tower before I'll come down. So they did. <coughs> And he finally started making his way down. And
0: this was live television?
1: This was live television. Man, this was the OJ chase before the OJ chase. And, and so he got, got to the bottom, and, uh, and they, they had removed the ladder so that everybody, not just anybody, would get up on that tower. They did more people on that tower. And so he had to jump uh, a distance, and he did. And of course, the minute he he hit the ground, the MPs grabbed him, and and he went berserk. Wow, you! I want
0: to get into this kind of quick, and you know we're guy, we're eating up an hour in a hurry here. Um, You left in 1986. You left WRBL. It had been your home for a great portion of your career. Um. It was front page news in the Ledger Enquirer when you Ledger and the Enquirer was two back then when Mm -hmm. you left. What, what can you tell us about that?
1: Well, uh, some new people had bought the station after Jim would have died, eventually, and uh, it worked okay. Uh, They weren't bad people or anything, but we had our differences, and uh, there were some things going on that I didn't approve of for me, and. So I just reached the point that, hey, you know, life is, life is too short for this. And so uh, <clears throat> I had lunch with the general manager of WTVM. And
0: that couldn't happen today because there are contracts that would, non, non-compete contracts, that couldn't happen today, could it?
1: It could. Uh, yes, it could happen. Uh, I didn't have a contract with WRBL. But guess what? When WTVM signed me, before I moved, went over there, I signed a contract. And so that was the first contract that I ever signed in broadcasting. WSB, WAGA, WRBO. No. Word word of mouth. But I did sign it. They wanted me to sign a contract. And I signed it. And so <clears throat> I left. And uh, But, you know, that doesn't mean I have anything against this station. Uh, it was a, it was that time and those people. And of course you've had a couple of different owners since then. And so it's, <clears throat> but, but that was that situation. And <clears throat> you just have to do what you think you have to do. I wasn't, it, you know, it ended well. I mean, I did well over at WTVM and, and, uh, made some really good friends, and I still had friends here. Uh, as a matter of fact, I came back over here maybe once or twice and appeared on uh, the Muscular Dystrophy Telethon. Oh, wow. I was, when I was working at WRBO, I was uh, one of the hosts Local host for the Jerry Lewis Telethon. For the Jerry Lewis Telethon, so they were used. That to, was a big deal back in the day. I doing that, oh yeah, that come was on. a really big deal. I stayed up
0: all night Labor Day weekend. For so that. they
1: asked me if I would come over, and and uh, to do it, and I went to the management of TVM and asked them, and they said, well, yeah, sure, if that's what they want, go ahead. So I did, and and I thought that what wasn't it great, you know, and and when I got this award, uh, when I was. Inducted into the Hall of Fame, it wasn't from WTVM or WRBL. It was from WRBL and WTVM. Columbus Broadcasting. Columbus Broadcasting. And, and that's the way it should have been because I spent a lot of time here and I spent about an equal time there almost.
0: What do you, to people that don't understand the news business, particularly the broadcast news business, what would you say to them to explain broadcast news then and now?
1: <clears throat> that's, a, that's a, you know, you got time for a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do
0: have your book here. I want you to show okay. the book, the newsman, Dick's book, the newsman. It's a memoir, and that was written how long ago, Dick?
1: 2005, and it, oh, I just tell a lot of stories. You yeah. get some inside information on this. <laughs> it's published, this one is the hardback. It was published by Ex Libris. Can be ordered through ex-libris, <laughs> and I and I have a uh, Kindle version of it. You can, uh, it can you can order it uh, <laughs> the e version uh, on Amazon. The Newsman, a memoir. Just type that in, and, <laughs> but,
0: and you know you you obviously have enough knowledge to fill a book. Um, what. What about this business did you like the most, and what about this business did you not like the most?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I was a pretty serious newsman at one time, and I wanted news to be news and not strictly entertainment. There's no way you can get away from it being entertainment. Anytime you perform, like reading a newscast, you are performing. And whether you want to call it acting or not, it is to a degree. And so I understand that. And I became a little bit concerned when it became more and more of a show and less and less of a newscast where the emphasis was on news and not razzmatazz and bells and whistles and all this stuff flashing across the screen. It was news. It was what was happening. It's what you needed to know. <laughs>
0: you know and that's old school i mean that's very much an old that's school that's old
1: school now that doesn't mean that what's going on now is bad i mean uh, the, the the technology is wonderful what you can do with drones and everything and and the in the cameras and so forth and that are so portable you can have a really great camera what, that big i mean look at what we're looking into right now right now and it's, and it's just just fine and and so and and they and, and, and there's what i would like to see uh, is more investigative reporting, and um, we did some of that. I did some of that. At uh, I did some here, and I did some at WTVM, and I did some in uh, in in Columbia, South Carolina, when I worked at WISTV. I did something that got me into big trouble there, <laughs> but but it was it was uh, it was important. You know, you this this is important. Television news is important. This is a democracy. I mean, you got me on my soapbox now. And this is a democracy, and, and keeping people informed about what they really need to know to make the proper decisions to keep this country a great democracy. Uh, television news has a very important job, even on the local level.
0: I would say especially on the local level, because the a lot of the national news has become you know, analysis, opinion, you know, stuff where, you know, and you got your teams on the national level. You don't necessarily have that on the local level.
1: Well, my complaint about a lot of the national, except for the major network newscast in the evening, is they hit one story and just stick with that all day long, it seems, over and over and over and over, and a lot of it's just repetition. You
0: know, one of the things, and this will – This is kind of an interesting place to sort of wrap this to some degree. But for many years, people had no idea what your political leanings were. You were down the middle. But once you retired, you you kind of...
1: For a brief period there, I did. I became fairly active. I was uh, elected as a member of the State Democratic Committee. And... uh, and, I, and I, I did get involved in that uh, for a little while. Uh, I haven't done it in quite a while. and <clears throat> But, yes, it was, you know, it was, I could do it then. I could, I could just, it was over as far as being a newscaster. I didn't have to go down the middle, and I could, uh, I could take sides, so to speak. But I, I, I never got over being also somewhat of an independent, and I had some very good, uh, independent or libertarian. Well, I'd probably say more independent. Okay. Uh, and you know, I I knew Bo Calloway, who was a, a Republican, big time, quite well, and uh, and uh, some would
0: argue should have been governor.
1: Yeah, oh, I remember that well too. That's another story we could get into, <laughs> uh, and and so yes, I I I, I have Republican friends and. And uh, and good people, and and so it's uh, you, you learn that.
0: Did you ever consider politics, taking your celebrity and running for political office? I did, I did consider it, but I didn't do it. What'd you consider running for? Mayor of Columbus? Yeah. I'll be your campaign manager. Well, <laughs> sorry, Skip, I'm trying to get your opposition. In well, you months. know
1: what? When I when I was thinking about running, I really was, and some some important people were talking to me about it. I say important people. I mean everybody's important to a degree, but some influential people.
0: There were people that could have helped you finance a campaign.
1: Yeah, I think so, okay. uh, and uh, that's the you know that, unfortunately that's the big deal. You got to have the money. And uh,
0: why did you think about running for mayor? You had the best job in the city.
1: Well, I was I was retired. It was over basically, and I just just had this this. Idea that I might, you know, it might be really be interesting. I got over it. Politics is a drug, just like
0: you talk about. I've talked to politicians that had this described the same feeling that came over you when you read your first words on the radio, over the radio. Politics is that same kind of drug.
1: <laughs> I'm addicted to it.
0: Yeah, uh, the, well, we hit a point where we do this. We kind of I call it turn the tables, and I'll be very interested. I. would you have no idea. I have no idea what's coming here, but you get a chance. Is there anything you want to ask me? I mean, why did
1: you number one? Why did you decide you wanted to be a news reporter? I didn't.
0: I wanted to be a sports reporter. Okay. There's a big difference. Right. I, and like you, you know, you a lot of things you talked about here. Chasing the money. I chased the money to the news side. News guys made more money than the sports guys. And when and I figured I had had the pinnacle of my sports career in '96 when I got to lead the Ledger Inquires coverage of the Olympics. I figured, okay, Olympics are never coming back here. It's never going to get bigger than that. And I always wanted to be a sports reporter because I knew I wasn't good enough to play the games, but I wanted to go to the games. And you know, but then in the news side, I became more. Politics is a game. This ele- its politics—is just like covering sports. If you can cover sport, a football game, or a basketball game, or an automobile race, you can cover politics. You know, Dale Earnhardt's personality—you write about the personality. You don't, you know. We had incredible personalities in these four Senate in these four Senate candidates that were in the runoffs, and I covered a lot of that this year and really got into it because, you know, you had Reverend Warnock, you had Ice you know, and they were chasing historic first, and then you had Senator Leffler and Senator Perdue who both had their own stories. I mean, it's it's personalities and it's and
1: its game. It's a game. Yeah, I. I, I, I... I was uh, mesmerized by it, too, to a degree. I, and I ended up covering some conventions, both Democratic and Republican. Covered uh, one in Miami that nominated Richard Dixon. I, entered, I interviewed Ronald Reagan there, and, uh, and so forth. So, okay, that's, why you, that's, that's why, you, why you did that. Now, why did you switch from the newspaper to television? <sighs>
0: I don't think I've said this publicly, but I'm going to say it now. And it's it's a fair question. It's an absolutely fair question. I had hit a point where I needed a change. Um, part of my job was to hold people accountable. That's what the Ledger Inquirer asked me to do for the last 15 years of my career there. Uh, investigative pieces. Investigative um, I mean, really tough investigative pieces, tough stories on businesses. And I was not sure that I could hold people in power accountable when my own house wasn't in order. And I knew there were some issues. I knew kind of what was coming. And that's why I did it. I, that I mean, fortunately... I was running from something when David Hart – and I mean, I know you're talking about the your lunch with the general manager at Channel 9. I mean, I hit a point where I called Phil Scoggins, and I said, Phil, you think they'll talk to me? And next thing I know, David talked, and I talked. He said, how serious are you? And I said, I'm pretty serious. And that went on for – week or so then it just went silent. I said it ain't gonna happen. And then two months later I get a call from David and he's like, Are you serious? And I said, Yes, sir, I am. And he he offered me a parachute. And the beautiful thing about this to me is that in the beginning I was running from something. I didn't see that I was running to something. Because the broadcasting. I've got great respect for you. I can't imagine fifty years of doing this, and you know. And the other cool part about the broadcast community in this town is, we have incredibly talented young people coming through here right now, that are going to be you know the next generation of the Reese Davises and the people that move into very big big jobs, you know. And I'm getting to see them in the in the beginning and. You know, it's interesting. Teresa and Phil sort of have the mom and dad role here covered. I mean, they, you know, with a lot of the younger reporters. I've kind of become the crazy uncle. <laughs> and, you know, and I think most of them realize that I'm a real journalist and that, you know, I've kind of got – I've done this a long time and stuff. And I can sort of help in my own way. But, you know, but I'm also doing what they're doing. I'm competing against them for stories, you know, so it's a different. It's a
1: different. This way. was this was television's uh, <clears> game <throat> when you made the switch. Thank I you. thought how fortunate WRBL was that they was getting a real, real journalist, uh, someone who was dedicated and someone who cared about getting the story and getting it right, and someone who understood depth and someone who could do a really good long interview and. <clears throat> The piece that you did with me in the paper, was I was very impressed. And, uh, Diamond
0: Kendrick Holmes, who's my editor, gets a lot of credit for that. I did 150 of those interviews over the course of three years, and and some of them were pretty rough, and Diamond clean, cleaned them all up. And I, I owe Diamond a great—Diamond made
1: me look very good. Well, you know, what happened with you is why CBS News, one of the big reasons CBS News became— the leader that it became, because a lot of those early reporters on CBS were, went from newspapers, from print, from the United Press International, uh, to television. You're talking about Walter Cronkite, uh, Eric Severide, <clears throat> uh, These, a lot of these really big early reporters had worked for newspapers, and so. CNN
0: Edward, used that model in the infancy the of its organization.
1: Well, you know, Edward R. Murrow was kind of running the show. And, uh, and he said what he was looking for was uh, he was looking for people who knew news. Uh, he wasn't so much interested in their voice and how well they could deliver the news. They would learn that. But what he was interested in is how much of a journalist they were. And so uh, a lot of those early people on that network were you. <laughs> well,
0: define news. What's your definition of news?
1: Well, it's what's happening. Uh, it's uh it, you could probably get into many definitions of, of what it is and the role that it plays. Uh, it's People need to know what's going on. And there are those who think, well, you shouldn't let them know too much. Uh, it's going to make them feel bad. Well, <laughs> they have to know to be able to handle it. And uh, it's a very important role, and it's scary when the wrong people get in control of it. Uh, and it's scary when some people get in control of it and, and skew it and use it for their purposes. And, and that can happen. Uh, but it plays a tremendous role in, as I said before, in a democracy and uh, letting people really know what's going on and not reporting just what you think they want to know, but reporting what they need to know. And this is the hard part, showing no favorites.
0: You did that for better part of a half-century I mean, like I said earlier, people didn't know if you were a Democrat or Republican when you were broadcasting. I mean, you made all you made all of them mad from time to time. <laughs> that's right, and and that's part of the beauty of it, right? If you do it right.
1: Well, uh, I've said this before, and that was when when I when I come off a newscast, and the Republicans thought I was too biased toward the Democrats and the democrats thought i was too biased towards the republicans i had done my job that night how would you like to have covered politics right now
0: with i mean it was still it was still a gentleman and lady sport when you were covering even when you left in 2000 no. well <laughs> but i mean now it's a blood sport
1: uh well it's always been a blood sport uh, and you know I came when I came along. We had people like Eugene Talmadge back in the 30s, who was an out-and-out open racist, and uh, and we've had a <laughs> some a few dishonest ones uh, over time. Uh, so it's this is this is nothing new. Uh, the, the politics is politics, and and it and it hasn't changed, and it's all about power, and and it always has been, and always will be. Uh, we are very fortunate that we are a democracy. Uh, we're not a pure democracy, that's for sure. We're a democratic republic, and uh, that, that's the way it works. And it's, uh, it's, I think it was Thomas Jefferson said that uh, you've got it, now can we keep it? Uh, and and that's, uh, that's the thing about it is, is, is keeping it. It's keeping it honest to a degree why uh, would I want to say to a degree? Because you're always going to have dishonest people. Who's your favorite politician? That's too hard. Uh, who was your favorite politician to interview? Well, uh, who was my favorite politician? I like Jimmy Carter a lot. Uh, I like to interview Jimmy uh, I don't call him Jimmy. I shouldn't I to interview President Carter,
0: but you and Jimmy are contemporaries in many ways
1: We're friends you're friends we're friends Jimmy Carter refers to me as his friend and uh that's an honor. I'm honored that Jimmy Carter says that.
0: What did you think in nineteen seventy six when he was elected president of the United States?
1: Hallelujah were uh, you stunned? I was moved. Really moved, and i said <laughs> i told I told just to George and he I think he was the station manager at the time, and he was still doing personal opinion and uh and I said, Well, George, I think finally the civil war's over. Jimmy Carter was from Georgia, had just been elected president of the United states and uh and that was uh, it was a thrilling moment. On inauguration day, did you go to DC? No, and but I'm watching it on TV like everybody. And when he when he stops the limousine and gets out and walks down Pennsylvania Avenue with Rosalind, uh, uh, Rosalind on one side and Amy on the other, his little girl, and they were walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. <clears throat> I was moved. And I think a lot of people were moved. That's the first time anybody, a president had ever done that. And uh, and uh, I remember the the commentator saying things like, he's gotten out of the limousine. Uh, the Secret Service probably going to go crazy. And uh, he's walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. And, uh, and he is, and, he, and, and Carter, I think, later said, President Carter later said something in effect of, I was uh, convinced that, the President of the United States should not have to fear the American people. He had been just been elected, and I wasn't going to do that. I was going to trust them, and we walked down that street. And that started it, and it's, they've been they've been doing it since, right?
0: Yes, they have. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating hour. I've, You know, I could sit here and talk to you all day because you – you are the epitome of a newsman it's the title of your book the title of your book, but you're the epitome of a newsman in And you know, and at ninety you still look like one and think like one <laughs> you know it was funny when this when this when I called dick uh when I called Dick last week to ask him to do this, he's like, you're doing what? He was like, what's a podcast? Where, where are you doing your podcast and all that? And I explained, I said, so how long have we got to talk? And I said, it's about 50, 55 minutes. And I said, you think you can do that? And, your response, I'll paraphrase it was, yeah, I think I still got 50 minutes of airtime left in me. And I, <laughs> I think you clear, I think you clearly did Dick. I, I just, I, I want to thank you for, for spending some time with us. We ran over. I mean, this is going to be the longest one by far.
1: Well, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you inviting me because I enjoyed this being with y'all and, uh, and you handled it very well. Uh, you kept it relaxed and, and interesting. And, uh, uh, I'm glad that you switched to television.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad I did, too. It's a. I will tell you this. I, I give Gene Connell and Connor Hackling, our, two, our leadership in the newsroom, and David Hart a lot of credit because I've gone back and looked at some of the stuff I did in the first six months, and I can't <laughs> believe they left me on the air. I wouldn't have <laughs> left me on the I would have said, this experiment needs to end. But... Uh, um, it, it's been good, and I've learned a lot, and I've got great respect for what you and people like you have done over the years. Thank you, sir. Well, you—that's it. We're gonna—we're gonna thank Dick very much for being here, and I want to thank you for watching on WRBL.com. You can catch us on the go soon on Apple, Audible, and Spotify, and you also can connect with me on Twitter at Chuck Williams. Facebook at ChuckWilliamsWRBL and Instagram at ChuckWilliams0999. It's been a pleasure to have this hour and 10 minutes, 12 minutes with Dick McMichael.